Uh, do you know the story of Hachiko? Hachiko. Is that the name yeah. of a dog? It is the name of a dog. Well, um, that, that was a number one good guess. Now let me see if I can guess the rest <laughs> of the story. Uh, so <laughs> it's like a famous dog in uh, at least Tokyo. It might be like nationally famous but i that's a stretch i feel i feel like everyone knows it but it's way more popular like everyone knows balto yeah i guess balto does have a statue in new york um yeah and everyone knows white fang i don't know white fang <laughs> how can you know balto but not know white fang they're kind what of is white fang white fang the jack london book white fang oh i know yeah it's a book and then they made a movie. Of course, Disney made a movie, just like Disney made the Balto movie, too. Did Disney make the Balto movie? I think so. I think it's a Disney Disney movie. Oh, okay. I thought it wasn't, but I don't know. <clears throat> but, uh, yeah, White Fang. I was a big Jack London kid, you know, back in okay. fifth through... Another piece of the puzzle. Fifth through eighth grade, To Build a Fire. Who loved that. Uh, the the one where the the short story where the two guys are trapped up in the Yukon territory in a cabin and all they have left each is like one bag of sugar and they're going crazy in their cabin because they've been snowed in for six months and then they start accusing each other of stealing each other's bag of sugar and then they run out into the middle of the snow to hide their bag of sugar and then they end up both dying because they're so paranoid. It's a great hmm. story too. Um, okay. But yeah, White Fang. I would say White Fang, at least for me, White Fang is more popular than Balto. But they're right up there. Right up there. Uh, well, so I was a kid when the Balto uh, cartoon movie came out. Okay. So uh, maybe that's why it sticks out more in my head. And the White Fang one, I'm, I'm assuming came out before that. Yeah, White Fang is about a, a gray wolf up in Alaska that was being used for dog fighting that a uh per, a dude who was going up there to pan for gold saved from the dog fighting ring and then it's like his little buddy on on his uh gold claim and they're like become best friends like dog and human and then okay. the dog the dog fighters come to try to steal White Fang back because he was like the best dog fighter making everyone a ton of money in the town. It's 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 pretty gruesome. But yeah, it's a good story. Huh. Uh is the Disney movie bloody? Um it's uh the Disney movie is live action, so it's I think oh. it's Ethan Hawk is the young kid. God, this the Disney movie must be from like ninety two or something like that. I was definitely a kid when it came out, and Ethan, it was like Ethan Hawke was a kid in the movie, like a teenage kid. Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, that like they show very. I remember very graphic depictions of dog fighting, and they show huh. like. Uh, I remember being cringy because you see like the dogs get hit with chains and uh, and bats and stuff to make them fight of course i don't think they actually hit the dogs but like that's the depiction that they're like in order to make the dogs mean they uh beat the shit out of them and stuff this is so wild so white fang came out in 91 and i had never heard of this movie but balto came out in 95 <laughs> there you go <laughs> it's not that different um so anyways this hachiko is kind of famous in uh tokyo there's a statue of him at 
the Shibuya station, uh, I believe Shibuya station. And, um, essentially he's, it's like a, uh, what is the Akita? It's mm-hmm. an Akita dog. And in the early 1900s, like 1920s or something like that, um, or maybe it was in the 30s. I think in the 30s. Uh, the There was like a professor that had this dog. And the professor walked. This is the story. Walked every day. Um, the dog walked with him to the train station. And then the dog would go home by itself. And then the dog would go to the train station before the professor arrived back home. And then uh, would walk home with him. And then the story goes... Um, the professor died at one point, but Hachiko went to and waited at the station every day for him, like, after that. Because that's cool. So um, it's like a, you know, kind of touching story of a man and dog being best friends, and this dog is waiting for its owner to come back home. Uh, well, my favorite TV show, uh, the one that tests all the theories in Japan, mm-hmm. they um, Mythbusters they wanted- Japan. <laughs> yeah yeah except run by comedians um they wanted to see if there was anybody alive still that had met hachiko um because he's like become a, a folk hero kind of like there are stores around there that would sell like hachiko merch or like sell little like pastries in the shape of him or whatever and uh they found some people that knew of him um, and then some people that had met the dog and, um, the actual story is the professor only, and they didn't mean for all of this to come out. They just wanted to find somebody who met him, but all of these people know the real <laughs> story. The professor only had the dog for like a year before the professor died. So it's not like it was like a, you know, you can form a bond with a dog in a year. Yeah. Um, a, a but, year, a year is a long time for a dog. It's like five yeah, yeah. years or seven. <laughs> but it is not, you know, like it was his lifetime companion. Um, and they also found uh, there was a lot of like like chicken restaurants around there that, that cook chicken mm. on skewers. And apparently the dog, uh, instead of going straight home and going straight to the station and coming back, we just kind of walk around town to the different chicken places and wait for them to give him food. So this is so, a my pig story. <laughs> pretty much. He found but himself it, smart enough <laughs> to wait around for all the different chicken stands. <laughs> so it turned out that the dog was really just good at remembering where all of the places were they would give him food. Not so much that he was waiting for the professor. Um but he was so popular in driving like tourism and stuff that they made a statue of him. I, I think they've revamped the statue because the one they showed in the photos looks like the Ronaldo statue. Like it's, oh, it's yeah. not, not great. <laughs> like the, um, the, the bust that the blind lady did. Yeah, of, yeah. <laughs> of uh, Richie, what's his face? Lionel Richie. <laughs> and so... <laughs> I'm just remembering like that Jesus painting that the woman like redid. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. It was horrible. <laughs> she, um, she fixed it. 
<laughs> but they made the statue of him before he died. So that was the other thing. They're like, the only people that have statues made before they're dead are dictators. <laughs> so the story of Hachiko uh, has forever been changed in my eyes. What's never ending to find the beginning that came before everything? Like kids with decoders discover the too bad uh i guess you know you hear the other stories of like the dogs who know their owners are dead so they go and like lay on the gravestone of their dead owners and stuff like that and i don't i don't know i don't know you know and and you know then then like the 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 american hero dogs like Breton Bretagne. Yeah, from that's 9/11. the patron saint of uh, the blowout feed. Yeah. <laughs> rest in peace. May she rest in peace. Although she might have had a statue before she died as well. For what? I don't know. That Maybe they put one in Shanksville. Or in yeah, Grapevine. I, yeah, they may have right next to their other statue. <laughs> um. Yeah, it's kind of like the dogs that can smell like or sense, you know, seizures coming on or mm-hmm. uh, like the cancer smelling dogs and stuff like that. Like that's, that seems like a trainable skill. They can smell you starting to rot from the inside. <laughs> but yeah, can't some dogs like tell whenever somebody's about to die? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, I think it's not just dogs. There's some other species too where they can uh, smell seizures. Uh, so you have like epileptic um assist dogs yeah like pigs and other things that can uh sort of give you that sense and i don't know if it's necessarily a scent thing or if it's something else where they can pick up on uh some kind of electromagnetic signal that your body might be giving off or something like that too yeah i mean chibi our dog um this is more of an October kind of story, but we were at my in-laws house, uh, in Japan for like new years and Miho's cousin and his parents had come over and then, um, Miho's uncle's mother came over. So, uh, or I guess cousin's grandmother came over and, Chibi was like cool with everybody for most of the night. And then the cousin stood up at one point and Chibi just started barking like crazy, but not like at him, like over his left shoulder, like up at the ceiling. And we were like, what is going on? (laughs) Yeah. And uh, two days later, his grandmother died. So (laughs) we were like, Jesus. So, so of course, (laughs) correlation is causation. (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, you know, that kind of got us on this like path. Our other dog, Totoro, um, he is, he loves dead things. Like whenever mm-hmm. there's a dead thing, he will like rub himself all mm-hmm. over it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it loves to smell like death. And then uh, Chibi kind of likes to hang around death like that. But then Chibi also, you know, had this incident. I think another thing happened, strangely, where he was barking up at the corner and then somebody got sick. <laughs> it's very strange. Um, but so then, like, with Totoro, we're like, oh, that's strange. But then I was like, hold on. I remember from Egyptian mythology, um, Anubis is like a black dog Mm -hmm. and you know the god of the dead um sort of like not in the same way that hades is more like judges you on whether you're good or bad or whatever and uh so i was like okay well that's kind of maybe he's just a you know anubis wanted to come live on a this mortal coil for a little bit okay that's kind of a funny thing (laughs) then i was like i wonder if anubis has any siblings sure enough uh so totoro is a black um He's like a corgi, husky, German shepherd mix. Uh, And sure enough, I look up, Anubis has a a gray jackal brother, Wepowet, which I know I'm mixing up the Greek name um, and the Egyptian name. you know, Alexandria is right there in Egypt, and it's kind of, you know, (laughs) you know how it ended up. (laughs) Cleopatra was a a greek anyway so or roman i don't know i don't know it's tough to remember how it all worked out so wepoet um is gray and is the 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 person that like takes people to anubis um so and chibi is like a blue healer mix so he's like gray so he's like the bailiff that brings you to your death judgment (laughs) yeah it's very interesting though i was looking up like wepoet was um was like a sun god at one point and then like i don't know like the way the mythology changes is so interesting i would love to take like an egyptian mythology class i took two years of egyptology in college as part of my history undergrad Mm -hmm. and uh it started out as being like oh man this is gonna be super interesting (laughs) oh no (laughs) and then it quickly turned into there's no way that one person in two semesters could learn or understand or try to regurgitate all of this information on a test to the point oh, where man. like our professor was like, and I know that all of these names are all going to run together. And since we're all using BC timelines, you know, it's going to be tough for your linear chronological mind to keep track that we're always counting backward or reverse in time and all of this stuff. So we were allowed to bring two eight and a half by 11 sheets of paper front and back with as many notes as we could cram on those things for the tests. Just Did they have to be handwritten or could you have Had to be handwritten. Out? Had to be handwritten. It's always the caveat. <clears throat> and yeah, so uh, the best I ever did in that, in that class was a C. And is it, but it was strictly had to do with just the the naming conventions and you know because you could you could memorize the pharaohs because that was pretty that was easier because you know they're all like on 50 year time scales for the most part and but all of the subsequent rulers of lower and middle egypt and who Mm -hmm. was in charge of what revolution and who was in charge of what religious sect that overthrew the other people and that's why 
all of their gods got changed to different roles and dude, yeah 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 by 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 the time like <laughs> you, you, by the time you think you have a handle on it it's like you you've completely forgotten all the stuff that you learned previously yeah why aren't you going on ijb to tell tc how it is possible oh no wait that was a uh, that's not ijb that was um life skills oh, yeah. where he was saying that uh nobody knows how the pyramids were built and um <laughs> if they had built a ramp it would have had to be miles long and that would have been the greatest achievement they ever made so why would they take that down well how how is masada built that would be my question <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what masada is, but he <laughs> the thing with the pyramids though is um he was stating all of this because his his reference for uh, nobody knowing how the pyramids were built was a guy who went on Joe Rogan and said that they built them with their mind powers and telekinesis. See, no one knows. You have when you have so many theories, it's clear that you can't ha- you can't really know what theory it is. Just like with dogs, <laughs> there are so many articles that I read, especially ones that were like pre twenty twelve articles and scientific literature on it that were just basically like there's absolutely no way to know there's just i mean you, we could we could come up with a million guesses any one of them could be right they all are equally valid so there's no way to know <laughs> oh man because there's no such thing as objective truth anymore nothing could possibly be true so you just can't <laughs> we, the, everything's a lie yeah <clears throat> Well, uh, I also want to thank the listeners for uh, allowing me to take a week off. I told my dogs that I was going to be uh, talking about dogs on the podcast, and uh, one of them got so jealous that he decided to grow a tumor on his spleen. Um, so, <laughs> all about him. So he, we had to take he, his he's spleen. He's the out drama queen of the boys. He is. He's. He's. That's Chibi. So he's now had a tumor on the spleen and needed that taken out. Uh, when he was a puppy, he had a growth on the back of his neck that we had to cut off. Um, it was benign, um, but you know now these two things are. I'm like, okay, well, how benign is it? Obviously, he lived uh, past six months, so it was benign. And then we moved to Japan, and before he was two years old, he had a degenerative lumbo lumbosacral stenosis, so he had like a hernia that he had to have surgery on and get a plate or screws put in. He was part of a, a research study in Japan, though. The surgeon that fixed him there is, like, the number one kind of, <clears throat> like, bone surgeon in Japan. Mm-hmm. And he was, like... For dogs or for humans? For dogs. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, and he was, like, you know, fairly close to us. But he's the person that, like, we were talking to other people there, and they take like racing dogs and like agility dogs and stuff from all over the country to this guy. Oh, so like, he's like, he's we like the Dr. To, Andrews of sports dogs. Like if <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> Dr. Andrews is the guy who fixes everyone's uh elbows and shoulders in major league baseball and oh, okay. also like quarterbacks and stuff like that. Then yeah, he must I mean, the people drove like eight hours just to bring their dogs for like a checkup on their hips to this guy. So he had that, then we came back to the U.S., and uh, he started having seizures, so diagnosed with epilepsy, and uh, so now he he has 
this tumor that they're still running tests on, uh, don't have those back yet, but they did a biopsy on his liver, uh, a swollen lymph node that was nearby, and then his GI tract. Uh, liver, no cancer they found. Lymph node, no cancer they found. GI tract, no cancer they found, but low on B12 and has IBS. So. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe he's got whatever that, uh, what is it? AMY 26 gene that allows him to really eat starch and he can just go on a rice diet or something. Yeah. Yeah. I was, uh, I was, cause they're like, you know, it's like Crohn's disease. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't have Crohn's disease. So I don't know what the, <laughs> what to do for that, but cool. Yeah. But yeah just give him some white like, rice and maybe a little egg white. It was fantastic because you look up, um, what diet do you need for Crohn's disease? And it's like foods to eat. You know, high fiber, blah, 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 blah. And then I look at another list and it says foods to avoid, high fiber, yeah. blah, blah, blah. <laughs> it's just like, wait. Yeah, I was about to say, I don't know if you want high fiber with Crohn's. I mean, you're already like <laughs> on the verge of running out of any room at any second for, for a bathroom emergency. So yeah, <laughs> <laughs> increasing the likelihood of that by dosing yourself with fiber might not be the greatest idea. I don't know why, yeah, Google decided to give me that preview of an article that was, I, they must have clipped th- like two wrong sections together, <laughs> but he is at least good whenever he does have an upset stomach. He like just comes and stares at me. <laughs> so like, you know, he's not going all over the house. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, that is but good. But we're, we're handling that. Um, and I appreciate you, Josh, for wanting to do this because I know you're not a dog person. I wouldn't say I'm not a dog person. I have cats. Like now, personally, I have cats. But that's also just more probably because uh, they're easier, you know? They're they're yeah. a little more self-sufficient than dogs. If you want to go on a vacation, you can leave your cats unattended for like a weekend, four days, just leave them enough water and food and they'll be fine. Whereas like a dog, you got to walk it all the time. You got to, you know, there's, there's much more hands-on stuff you got to do with the dog. And I grew up my whole life with dogs. Um, like ever since I can remember, we always had a dog or multiple dogs or (laughs) three, four dogs at a time. So it's kind of, uh, once I gained my own autonomy, I was like, yeah, you know, I've done the dog thing for 18 years. You know, I kind of did it. That's that's cool. <laughs> <laughs> done and dusted. Done. <clears throat> dogs, though, uh, everybody's. I I don't know if it's just they they can they can tell something something about me, whether it's my disability or whatever it is. But all all dogs are really. Um, compassionate and empathetic and loving towards me no matter who they are even if like I go over to friend's house and like this dog has a reputation for being an asshole to everybody it's that just never they're never an asshole to me I don't know why I guess I'm just not an evil person to them yeah yeah um I need to see this put to the test (laughs) just because it's uh, you know, you can you can make this claim, but I need to see it backed up. Hey, it's true. I you you can ask all of our mutual friends, and they'll tell you it's true. You and Henry get along. Oh yeah, I'm Henry's best friend. I might be Henry's only friend at this point. 
Oh no. <laughs> as long as you're not picking up the Xbox to run out the door, you're fine. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um so I didn't know uh really where to start with this, but I did look up the evolution of what became dogs. And then it I got like first off, this was I I did way too much research on this one cuz this is like the first episode that I'm afraid of disappointing people. <laughs> it's it's like this this is for you any of the time we do astronomy or cosmology episodes. I feel like, <laughs> all right, I got to really be on top of it right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, like we had, we've had, I've had dogs my entire life. The only time I didn't live with a dog was when I was at college. Um, and... Yeah, I think uh, my dogs had, or my parents had a dog before I was born. Yeah, pretty much the whole time. Um, and then that time uh, where I was, whenever I'd go visit my dad's house, uh, whenever he just uh, gave our dog away because mm. he didn't want to take care of it anymore. Mm. That didn't live with a dog then. Um, but it's dogs were like always pretty interesting to me. I think when I was a really little kid, I wanted to be a vet. Um, specifically because of dogs and, uh, you know, that obviously changed, but there's, it's, it's interesting, like knowing dogs so well and how so many people, I think kind of have preconceived notions on like just looking at a dog. Like you can kind of tell what the temperament is or like how it's handled and all that kind of stuff and not even like just by them doing uh listening to commands or anything but you can kind of it's I don't in the know, eye you... contact yeah yeah like there's actual that was one of the interesting thing little tidbits i learned was that uh the same oxytocin flooding that we get when we make eye contact with other human beings to where like we can have that unspoken not even like facial expression type of awareness of each other's existence and like almost like the type of individual we are just by making eye contact with each other dogs have the same oxytocin flooded response in their brain when they make eye contact with you or with other dogs so that same gaze um neural pathway is similar in both them and us so there's that there is some sort of uh, connection where we feel like we're getting to the deeper true self of each other whenever we make eye contact. Yeah, it is. It's a very strange kind of like bond that you can have with like even dogs that you don't know. Like anywhere we go, Miho just looks at a dog and it like wants to run up to her. Mm -hmm. um, and I typically don't like pet other people's dogs. So I'm just standing there awkwardly. As Miho's like, <laughs> getting attacked by this puppy. Um, but I had never looked at the the genetic side of like wolf to dog, but then had never looked at the evolution of dogs. So I found it pretty interesting. Um, just real quickly, like the the. Canids um, is like the, what is it? The family mm -hmm. um, when you're going, you know, through yeah. kingdom order, all that stuff. Phylum, genus. Yes. Um, 
Yeah, I started at Kingdom and then went to Order. I don't think that's correct. <laughs> There's some uh, middle <laughs> steps, but you know, it, it's a hierarchy. <laughs> It's like the plant kingdom, animal kingdom. Yeah. Um, so the the hierarchy of like classifying things and the canids is one of those classifications. Um, and the evolution to get to dogs is still not fully known. Um, but it is pretty interesting to know about these other subfamilies that existed. Mm-hmm. So, like, 40-ish million years ago, the first ancestor of these three subfamilies of canids evolved. Um, it's a hard name to pronounce. It's like Hesperocyonine. Um, And it kind of... it. I think they said it was, like, the size of about a fox, but it its body structure looks kind of like a ferret. Mm-hmm. Um, so, it's really long and, like, bendy-spined. Uh, it was like really nimble and they were carnivores that adapted to like the warm forest of the late Eocene, mm-hmm. which is like 38 million to 34 million years ago. And they had like fully retractable claws and could climb trees. Um, but they sort of died out around 15 million years ago. I'll get to that um, in a minute, but they existed in North America and there's been no evidence uh, founds that they existed outside of North America, which is kind of interesting. Um, around like the the 30 million years ago or so, there was, uh, or as the climate started to cool, I guess I'll say, and North America uh, chilled out and turned from forest into more grasslands, then herbivores, large herbivores evolved that could uh, eat the plants and like run long distances and stuff. Um, and so the like nimble carnivores, um, that family like couldn't really adapt, but there was another, uh, uh, subfamily that evolved called the Borophagini. And they are known as like the bone eating Mm-hmm. And like bone crushing, I guess, is kind of like the the term that people use because they want it to sound cool. Um, well, because they found their their teeth or their jaws. And canids, that's how they're yeah. like, oh, I guess this is a characteristic. So we should name it that. <laughs> <laughs> and they they were massive, too. Like they were um, like they look like ripped tigers, uh, but dogs. I mean, they're like before dogs. They're canids. Um, but by like the mid Miocene, um, like 16 to 12 million years ago, there was a genus that evolved called the um, Episcyons. And there's one species, Episcyon uh, Haydeni, that was the largest canid to ever live. And a conservative estimate is it was 375 pounds. Yeah. Um, and these things had like massive widths to their head their palate was really wide and their cheek teeth were so large uh, they had domed heads and so they could like crush bones and then get to the marrow to eat that and scientists think that they hunted and hunted larger prey than themselves but did so in packs Mm -hmm. Um, but they're so large that their hunting style was like pounce pursuit and they would kind of like coyotes, like they would chase something for a short distance and then be able to wrestle it to the ground. It's and, like how they think uh, certain 
certain dinosaurs would hunt. Yeah, yeah. It's it's not not the long distance hunting. It's the, you know, you're you're hiding and waiting and mm-hmm. then you like get something. Well, um what's interesting is that that first subfamily died out around 15 million years ago. Um they have found evidence that uh, cats actually that evolved in Eurasia around 33 million years ago migrated to North America around 14 million years ago. And cats are way better at like ambush hunting. Uh, They had retractable claws, which these bone crunching ones did not have anymore. And so they were, they were more nimble and able to be efficient at hunting. And the bone crushing uh, canids went extinct around 2 million years ago. No evidence they left North America. And they're not sure if uh, Cain and I, like the the canines, came from either of these two subfamilies or if it was something else entirely. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the canines arrived around 30 million years ago in North America. And because the canines were able to evolve in a way where they like lost that fifth toe and it became like just either a small nub or was totally gone. Mm -hmm. Um, That made their paws lighter. They became more sleek and had like thinner teeth um, and longer snouts. They were able to change their hunting style. And um, it's still the hunting style that canines like wolves use today where they do like the long pursuit of something. They run it for hours until it it collapses from exhaustion. And they just follow um, a herd. Yeah. And so it's kind of interesting to now see like, okay, so this is how the canines like arose a long time ago and were able to outcompete like the cats that were better at ambushing prey. And mm-hmm. it's just because they changed their hunting style, not... um you know, consciously, but over that evolutionary pressure to find a way to survive. And uh, so I found that pretty cool. Um, And then the canines left uh, North America. They spread to all all regions, um, including like South America. And that's how South America has a native canine species, the maned wolf. Um, Mm -hmm. But they they went over to to, uh, Asia, Eurasia, and that's kind of where the I think the main story of dogs, I mean, obviously, uh, starts. Yeah. And the, I guess the other interesting thing is the way that we've always thought about dogs from a human perspective is, of course, very much informed by our intuition. And then it's also informed by our, you know, narrative stories and our mythology and everything else. So, um, the, one of the most interesting pieces or pieces of information as I was doing the research is just the, again, the example that we are problem solving machines. And when we lack any kind of evidence or scientific ability to come up with the correct solution, we will come up with a solution that makes the most sense to us because we can't stand like an open-ended question that doesn't have an answer. So we have, you know, like, Jack London stories of White Fang and all of this. And so we naturally have, I think the general populace's assumption is that, oh yeah, there's these things called wolves and they still exist today. 
there's gray wolves all over the place in North America and in Asia and, and in Europe. And obviously dogs just were those, they, you know, they came from that thing. And, and so now we have dogs and they're just like a version of that, that we, you know, wanted to hang out with and, and we tamed it and that, that became, uh, the domesticated animal. That's all of our best friend. But once you apply like the actual genetic analysis to and the mitochondrial DNA analysis to these lineages, the the especially the ones that have been done since 2014 to present, the uh, the stark reality comes when you have the evidence that shows, nope, nope, gray wolves are not the ancestor of dogs. They're they're not the predecessor to dogs. They don't. It's very similar to how like oh. The the uh, the old argument of oh we all we all just came from chimps and chimps are still here so wh- how does that make sense from the human evolution standpoint it's like no there was a common ancestor way back way back there somewhere that then we diverged from and if anything gray wolves and m- the modern wolf now is an amalgamation of domesticated dogs that repopulated back with wild species and created gray wolves that exist now so if anything wolves now are a re-abstraction of domesticated dogs going back into the wild populace and mating it's not the same as whatever the original ancestor was that branched off between dogs and gray wolves and coyotes and other things. That original ancestor is extinct and it's gone from, you know, at least 60,000 years ago, if not way later in the past. Yeah. And the, I mean, I, I've never seen like, I don't think I've ever seen a wolf at like a zoo or anything. Um, did you see any when you were at Yellowstone? Uh, we didn't see any wolves, just bison and elk um, and mooses. Uh, we did not see any wolves, but I've seen wolves in Colorado and I've seen them um, at the zoo and on uh, nature preserves and stuff like that here in Texas. Yeah, maybe I have seen them, but the in North America, like half of all gray wolves are black and that they've like traced genetically is an exact trait coming from like domesticated dogs mm-hmm. um like you know uh mating at least with like a gray wolf population so it's that's the thing that is very interesting like looking at a phylogenetic tree you sent me like that carta podcast mm-hmm. um but i actually i found like the video oh f- like from the, the actual um speech or whatever presentation yeah and he the guy like shows the professor uh did not write down his name um shows a ton of different uh phylogenetic trees and stuff and it's insane how many different types of like dogs and proto dogs and wolves and stuff that they've found evidence for that exist because this is only talking about like you know, the last few hundred thousand years, um, if you really want to like, yeah, because it's, I mean, obviously they've found these fossils for like the bone crunching ones and stuff for millions of years ago, but the, the number of species that have existed and gone extinct in the last few thousand years that are 
like again it it gets difficult when you talk about species um especially when it comes to dogs because they can still breed with each other but just know that there's enough genetic diversity between the two or genetic variation between the two that they're considered separate species they have something about them that's different tooth shape or skull shape or whatever Mm. um and seeing how like what we would consider dogs genetically have evolved like dozens of times but have gone extinct for whatever reason there have been populations that were found that we would consider it like a dog it is it has more genetic traits of dog than it does wolf but it went extinct and um like in the same vein there's tons of wolves that we've found that have just gone extinct that you know are branches off with those dogs and stuff mm-hmm. um so it's fascinating to know like the origin of going from wolf to dog happened so many times and possibly it happened uh coinciding with like humans too yeah and for whatever reason those dogs just died off um i don't know it's very it's very crazy <laughs> that it is like traced back to these this one species that split off and if you if that one species had gone extinct, then there would have never been like any of the wolves that exist. And there would have never been any of the dogs that exist because all the other ones went extinct. Right. And we've talked about, you know, with the um, extinction of all the megafauna in Australia. And then when we talked about the human phylogenetic tree, um, how at the end of the last ice age, there was a huge bottleneck event that caused where you had millions of individual humans all were reduced down to a population of a few thousand because of different climate events that were going on at the time and volcanoes and other things. The same thing happens with um, wolves and dogs. There's a huge bottleneck event at the same time, and they go from having vast numbers to only a very small handful of numbers and then from that small group then it expands out again to be what we know now as modern wolves and modern dogs so the same type of pressures that ended up in us almost going extinct and then having to then come out from a much more um closely knit gene pool after we had already diversified and spread over half of the planet um is it's the exact same thing that happens happens with canines. Yeah. <clears throat> and it's it's like all canines too. I don't know. The this one tree that he showed was really interesting because it shows you've got this root ancestor and then the thing like the golden jackal mm-hmm. is is so far back in time before the uh, ancestor of dogs and wolves existed. So the jackals are like so separate mm-hmm. from wolves even. But then, uh, and this guy's presentation was like from a few years ago. So I think the numbers may be, may have been updated some. Um, and this guy spoke in generations, uh, which is kind of complex when talking about dogs and wolves. Um, compared to like, obviously it makes sense generations because you understand mutations happen at a certain rate. Right. Right. But then 
other studies talk about years and then putting them together i'm like so one generation for a dog is like eight and a half years i feel like they have more offspring than waiting until they're eight years old um but still even but still then even if you're talking about like twenty thousand years of dog evolution over generations it's not that much time and it's not that many generations to actually have right. adaptive mutations cause uh environmentally selected pressures to cause evolutionary changes in those animals yeah the way that we see the- just 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 like we are the same pretty much as those individuals at the last ice age and even the human individuals that came out of africa the first time we're not very much different from them at all just because there hasn't been enough time for us to have some kind of crazy evolutionary change that causes us to change in our body yeah. or our mind. There hasn't really been an evolutionary pressure event for for humans to change. And that's, again, the thing that um, we always like drive home is it's not like we would be able to prepare for that or right, say right. we need to start doing this or whatever. Um, it's just a naturally selective process. See how we get the Mm -hmm. term. Uh, So around like 3,800, like 3,800 to 4,800 generations ago is the ancestor of dogs and wolves. And um, maybe like early 2000s when they started doing like genetic research on dogs and wolves, they they thought that dogs were domesticated twice. Mm Mm-hmm. and they were like, well, the Chinese wolf and then the um, like European wolves are are different uh, genetically. And we know that there's like these dogs came from the Chinese wolves and then these dogs came from like the European wolves. But they've since found genetic evidence that no, uh, the common ancestor is actually farther back in time. So there's this ancestor where you have a branch and it is all of the wolves that exist and then all of the dogs that exist um, are totally separated. And they're, the difficulty in then finding like more uh, timing, like genetic timing and stuff um, that makes it really hard is they could still breed and they did breed, yeah. especially, you know, uh, in a city where dogs are strays, like they're interbreeding. So you can imagine out in like, the wilderness that's happening all the time just on the giant piece of grassland that stretches from like spain all the way to russia after the ice age and there's just this huge step of just hey we could just roam free population wise and fuck whoever we want and (laughs) (laughs) and the common ancestors for wolves uh is like 3,700 to 4,700 generations ago, and the common ancestor of domestic dogs is 3,500 to 4,000 generations ago. So that overlap, too, in how close they are in time to each other makes it really complicated to, like, nail down a timing thing. Yeah, and there's not, like in humans, there is a distinct morphology separation that happens between our between chimpanzees and like human beings going back to our common ancestor so we can see just in a skull like you can pick up a skull and be like oh this is a human skull and this is a chimpanzee skull 
With dogs, the morphology stuff is not nearly as distinct or easy to determine, and you have wolves that have different morphology between other wolves and dogs that have different morphology from other dogs, and some dogs' skull morphology that looks like just like a wolf's morphology <laughs> and vice versa. So it's very tough, uh, at, at least at the beginning or from where that divergence point is, to figure out where in time exactly the split happened and then how many times did the did the two people or the two individuals from the split get back together and uh and have have pups with each other again yeah and then how do you determine that that was that their offspring say that's the fossil you find and you're testing its genetics how do you tell that that's different than the parents and that they were totally separate sort of populations and stuff mm-hmm. Um, so it becomes really difficult. And <laughs> like you're saying, the morphology is not, not super different between these things. Um, at the same time, ancestral wolf diversity was 10 times higher than it is today. Yeah. So you had way more species and things that were existing back then. Um, so it is it is difficult to find like all of those, find that exact time. But what is interesting through like uh, mitochondrial DNA, and we spoke about that on our human uh, evolution episode, where that's the DNA that um, is passed on only through like the mothers to the kids. Mm-hmm. That happens with dogs too. Um, it happens with, is it, we'll just say mammals right now. Um, yeah, <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's most animals, works, but yeah. you have some asexual reproduction that gets really, you know, sponges are weird. Um, so you, you get to this point and you can find this, you know, you can trace back where like the common ancestor was because the mitochondrial DNA goes through so many variations and you can trace back and understand, okay, if this one changes to this and blah, 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 where was the last time that these two separate groups of say dogs had the same mitochondrial DNA Uh, in its ancestor. So that's how you can trace all this stuff back. And they found there are four clades of dogs uh, that exist. And there's, there's quite a few of wolves that still exist, but the, the interesting thing of all of these like clades is um, first off, one of them that evolved uh, that is the oldest one to exist. It was around 18,000 years ago has roughly 70% of the dog diversity. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other ones have, you know, obviously much smaller diversity. Uh, but the kicker is they all arose like in Switzerland, Germany, Scandinavia, Ukraine kind of area. Um, which means all of the dogs that ever existed came from Europe, mm-hmm. uh, which is again, like we spoke about, but it's just wild to imagine that it was only 18,000 years ago and they were all populations that evolved separately within this one continent. Right. Which just lends that due to climate pressures and things that were happening at the end of the last ice age, there were probably just little pockets of groups that survived. And then you have, um, 
different pockets that adapted to different types of livability situations, whether that was at high elevation or that was in a more swampy region or a forested region or whatever. So you had different groups that were adapted to those areas and that attributed to the the diversity among those groups. But it all started from a very small group of individuals that survived the bottleneck event. Right. Um, so the, like, finding how they then came from uh, that, like, wolf that existed to the dogs um or proto dogs you could say like the just very early dogs because we know that they didn't have boston terriers like um you know on tuesday when sunday the wolf walked into the camp we gotta we gotta wait for people to start wearing wigs for fashion before we get to that spot (laughs) exactly Uh, But the traits of these like proto dogs is very interesting. And this is the part that I got into like really deeply started forming my own thoughts. So um, uh, hold on to your butts. Here we go. Uh, It is (laughs) the thing like with their traits first off about wolves and dogs and stuff is they're it's it's very strange when it gets to the genetics um, first off, there's only a few character traits that determine dog breeds. It is body size, leg length, fur color and pattern, fur type, and skull shape. Um, there might be a couple others, but those are the main ones. And strangely, uh, there is one gene, one single gene, uh, IGF-1, that is responsible for for more than 50% of the body size variation in dogs, <laughs> which is insane. Yeah. Uh, compared to humans, there are 40 genes that are responsible for height, but only control 5% of the variation in humans. So this immediately answers the question, if we can have like teacup poodles and mastiffs in dogs, why can't we have teacup humans and mastiff humans? And that's the answer right there. The genetic toolkit that decides those morphological features of dogs is this one switch, basically, that then you can manipulate that toolkit to breed with different different other individuals to get out certain outcomes from the breeding process. Whereas humans, it's... You can't just... uh, make us mate with other humans of different characteristic types and then get a desired result that we're going to keep, we're going to get these little bitty humans that you can fit inside your pocket. And then we're also going to get these like 10 foot tall humans that weigh a thousand pounds. We, there's not, you can't do that with us just because that's not the way our genetic toolkit works. Yeah. It's, and I don't know, like this is total speculation on my part. Um, but I can see how that would be like a a survivability sort of um, characteristic, like an evolutionary pressure to have this like switch where it just becomes way more beneficial. And this is total speculation again, but it becomes beneficial to with each litter. There's only one gene that controls body size and. So you're going to have a litter of dogs that might have different body sizes and the one that is best fit for whatever change Mm -hmm. in the environment might occur is the one that survives. 
Um, so, you know, you can kind of start to see like how evolution and genetics, like, like the understanding of evolution has come so far now that we understand so much more of the genetics Yeah, because it, you can, instead of like, you know, needing to, um, scream over like, uh, some Bible thumpers that are telling you that you're like going against God <laughs> by saying that God only wanted blonde hair, blue eyed individuals. What are you talking right. about? <laughs> <laughs> you can finally like have just your own, uh, nice coffee shop conversation <laughs> with other scientists <laughs> discussing like the genetic variations of things, uh, which is nice. It's better to compare those genetic variations with things um on this scale than it is like you know bean plants or whatever mm-hmm. Mendel was doing um <laughs> speaking of but or, but you know the bean plants and bacteria are really fun because you can reproduce them like on thousands of generations a day in the lab and you can really find out all the, that information it's <laughs> tough to do that with dogs and human beings <laughs> it is <laughs> uh unethical some might say um <laughs> which <laughs> that carta thing i was like looking at another there was another um, presentation, not on the same like fifty-seven minutes, because mm-hmm. uh, I think that one was three different people, right? Yeah, yeah. The fox um, lady in the middle that I could barely understand what she was saying. Yeah, yeah. It was. Uh, I didn't really watch that one because I'm not concerned with foxes. Um, but the there was another guy on a different video that he was talking about genetic traits and stuff, and. Boy, he was talking about like understanding genetics and genetic differences to understand populations and stuff and applying it to dogs. Uh, But he did say like, and I would like to, you know, look at some history and here's three prominent scientists in the field of, you know, genetic understanding for populations. He like pointed out one person. It's like 1901. And then this other guy in 1920 ish. And he's like saying, yeah, he led the field in uh, this kind of understanding and, you know, Got in a little trouble, had some Aww. Nazi support, <laughs> uh, but <laughs> I was like, all right, you know, because this guy, you know, sometimes with professors, you can't tell exactly, especially if they're into genetics, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> which way they lean, <laughs> but he was like, you know, his theory was mainly just saying, could we look at genetics to separate out populations of humans? <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, let's, let's but find out. Look, these genes are stupid people and these genes are murderers. <laughs> yeah, he, he showed another guy too that his last name on the screen was Lawrence. So I was like, okay, could be, could be one. And he was like, yeah, and this guy, he didn't mention any Nazi stuff, but he was like, this guy was interested in seeing if, um, genetic differences were um oh what did he say if it was like damaging the gene pool versus right, just right, something yeah. that naturally it's happened detrimental <laughs> to the gene pool I, yeah. that's like the turn of the century in america like the the height of the eugenics movement in new york like around 1901 1902 you know pre we're talking pre-world war one pre-world war two pre you know nazification of shit but when eugenics was like a bunch of doctors and scientists being like, hey, you know what? This might make sense. I've been seeing what all these Victorians are doing with the dogs. That, that could make sense with humans, too. And so the way to like test the theories, of course, was to just take a bunch of women who were considered crazy <laughs> and put in asylums and a bunch of 
orphaned children who are considered, you know, problems because they would be like pickpocketing people in the streets and stuff. And they were thrown in juvenile <laughs> facilities, child prisons, and then we'll do our genetic testing on them by, you know, doing selective breeding practices or cutting pieces of them out to see if that made <laughs> made them different, change their behavior. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's great. Uh... It's it's gruesome, for sure. <clears throat> um, so let's see. I want to get to like this is my main point that I kind of wanted to get to. So, anyways, I'll talk about this one. Like you mentioned, the AMY two B gene also in domestic dogs. Uh, it's one gene that is found uh, in dogs way more than it's found in wolves, and this one codes for a protein that's made in the pancreas that breaks down starchy food. Um, which is interesting because dogs or wolves themselves would not choose to eat starchy foods, Yeah, but yeah. you can see the human pressure of domesticating dogs this many thousands of years ago immediately had like impacts on their genetic code because the ones that could then live with humans who started uh, agriculture and growing crops, wheat, rice, um, and were able to digest that food, were able to survive and procreate and everything. Mm. Um, the the thing that is most important for understanding the domestication of dogs is understanding that domestication uh, is. Oh man, I, there's a great quote from like Charles Darwin. Here we go. Uh, domestication is more than taming an animal. It's a goal-oriented process for human purposes, and the variability of physical and mental traits um, are larger in domestic versus wild. Uh, the behavioral plasticity and educational ability is larger in domesticated animals, and the brain size is smaller in domesticated animals than the wild type. The goal, though, of domestication is to control the relaxation. And that means that in order to uh, domesticate the animal, your goal is to have a high tolerance for panic, so not freaking out all the time, uh, low aggression, because you can't have them being aggressive towards the Attacking owners or, yeah. or, yeah, the other dogs that are domesticated. Um, <clears throat> they need to have a flexible diet so there we you know they can eat starchy foods finally and a very important one is being able to be bred in captivity so the evolutionary trade-off of the domestication of dogs from wolves is it's no longer choosing a breed based off of the hierarchy of the pack or inner packs um, it is the hu allowing the humans to choose the breeding partners for you know, success or whatever the trait mm -hmm. is that they're wanting to breed. And this and, is this. Oh, go ahead. Keep going. No, you're fine. <clears throat> this is mo this is the obvious most prevalent uh, examples of this are when uh, humans started domesticating animals for livestock, like pigs and sheep and goats and that type of thing, because there were those are not like a necessarily some sort of simpatico a relationship of dual use like we are figuring out how to make these wild herd creatures into 
uh, domesticated private herd creatures that we can keep inside a fence and maintain them for a, a constant source of food that we no longer have to go hunt for all the time. Dogs is a different thing still from that ex- from that full domestication example. And the archaeological and genetic evidence shows that the domestication of those livestock type of animals is like 12, 15,000 years ago at the, at the earliest. And dogs domestication event might be like 40,000 or 30 to 40,000 years ago. So there's a, there is some level of humans figuring it out with dogs before they then tried to implement those same things on other types of animals like horses and goats and sheep and that type of experience. And maybe there, because of the, uh, there's, this is where it gets into a lot of speculative sort of theory about how does that first bridge work? Is it because dogs were following around um, packs of humans that were hunter-gatherers and because humans can't subside on a fully protein diet, they would leave a bunch of the protein of the carcasses of the animals they would kill behind and so then the wolves would scavenge that and then over time because this one group of wolves is just basically like hey we don't even have to do any work we can just follow these humans around and they're always going to leave us food then slowly over time some individuals from that wolf group became more comfortable being around the humans or had a lower tolerance for that freak out factor a lower fight or flight response and they were the ones that sort of became became part of the human group rather than being the outlier group that was just hanging around the humans. So there's that theory. And there's like mm-hmm. the uh, the campfire theory of, uh, oh yeah, humans were always around the campfire cooking their meat, and that attracted a bunch of dogs, especially because of their smell, or wolves, because they could smell the cooking meat and, the, and stuff. And so they would come around, and they weren't, there were certain individuals in those wolf groups that weren't scared of humans like some of the other ones were. And so they would get close enough to the fire where the humans would throw them a bone or throw them scraps or whatever. And then there ended up being a beneficial relationship, not that they were actually domesticated at that point, but that the wolves would basically stay around a perimeter of these human settlements and or encampments. And they would, by alerting each other, alerting other wolves around them of danger by howling or growling or things like that, they were de facto alarm systems for the humans that were camping there. And so then humans were like, hey, wait a second. It's kind of cool to know that there's another predator or something else, you know, coming around because the wolves let us know. And so then they tried harder to get the wolves to hang around more, and then that became a domesticating event. And, I, you know, this is where it's up to our human imagination. And I'm, it's one of those times where I want to put the brakes on uh, our human-centric view of the world being like, we saw that there was a useful thing in these animals and we saw some mm-hmm. sort of semblance of ourselves there. So we bonded with them and then we domesticated these things. Um, similar to our conversation about the domestication of agriculture being more like agriculture domesticated humans, not the other way around. I, I wonder if it's less of a human centric view to think of dogs 
being a thing that domesticated themselves because the pressures were such that it was an easier lifestyle or survivability to surround themselves by humans, especially if they weren't afraid of them. Like all, just like all the other megafauna that was around, whether it was carnivores or herbivores or omnivores that humans came across and they weren't scared of them because <laughs> they'd never really encountered them. Um, I wonder if it, there's something to that where maybe we need to give the wolves a little more credit and the, uh, them realizing that this is the path of least resistance to survivability and not necessarily humans being like, I need a pet <laughs> type of type of thing. Right, yeah. Um, and that's kind of the thing that I really wanted to to talk about is we've spoken about the stress hormones before. We did a whole episode on stress. Um, and we know that there, obviously, everything that happens like in your body um, from your own cells, I'll say, just instead of talking about microbes or whatever, comes from your a genetic material coding for it. So mm -hmm. we know that there's genes associated with, you know, the proteins that then make those chemical messengers in your brain or hormones or um, control the proteins that then control the release or the response of all of those things. So we know that there's this genetic uh, basis for understanding the stress levels and stress response and all that kind of stuff. So the part that was always um, hard for me to wrap my head around until really thinking about it yesterday was, okay, wolves are like aggressive animals. Um, so how do they really have just a change in aggression based off of something being beneficial? But if you really think about it, um, wolves are aggressive but they live in packs and they are highly social animals. So already the the canines that evolved to become wolves already had a natural pressure on maintaining their um their aggressiveness mm -hmm. towards each other. So there is already this thing naturally keeping in check this aggression to make sure that they don't become too aggressive not not that they don't become too aggressive but it's just it's more beneficial that, to be in the pack than it is to be a loner right and the ones that are more aggressive are either kicked out of the pack or killed so it is there's already this this you know we talk about like learning and through evolution there can be like that kind of instinct or whatever that is that is embedded into mm -hmm. dna and that is like a long process, but then humans have the ability to conceptualize and that's how our learning is sped up yeah. so much more than evolution could even have a chance to do. Well, these canines have been around for millions of years. They have this already built-in natural pressure to keep their aggression in check. So it's no wonder that there is this ease at which their genetics could be... Um, at first naturally selected for in order to say, hey, we don't have to work as hard if we just follow these people around. Yeah, it's not like just straight meat, but it's still food. Mm -hmm. Like we don't have to struggle to get food. And that is like the whole thing that living is pretty much. Um, and then, then they have this 
built-in natural switch that can then be adapted and artificially selected for once humans do start trying to select for less aggressive uh, proto-dogs and stuff like that. So it's kind of cool to to start to imagine how like, oh, they already had this system in check naturally. Mm-hmm. It was just um, over like a short, a very short period of time, it could then be selected for and selected against to make sure that aggression was kept way lower than um, it should naturally appear. Right. Or, or it could actually be like the Romans said, where you, you take, uh, you take a couple kids and you just let the wolves raise them. And then the wolves realize the importance of human bonding. And so (laughs) then that's how you get the bond between dogs and humans or, or, you know, like the Jungle Book, like Mowgli, you know, raised by wolves. It's, that's the way that it, it's the way that he came to his, his realization that it was more important to be a man of the jungle and uphold those beliefs and realities than it was to be a man of the city. It was funny. Uh, you know, like the Romulus and Remus uh, being raised by a wolf. Um, what was the Latin word for wolf? Lupus? Yeah, lupus. Um that was also the word that they used for prostitute back then. So that was <laughs> <laughs> that that is one one side to that story that it could have just been like a prostitute that raised these two kids. <laughs> it was just one of those uh, one word for two things. You guys just interpreted it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And uh I'm not saying that I even buy into the story that um one person put a fence around seven hills and then his brother Remus is like, your fence is dumb and jumped over it. So he then killed him with a rock. Um, I don't think that that's how Rome was founded. Uh, but And then he built all the roads by himself. <laughs> exactly. Yes. <laughs> Would have been great to have a brother there to help carry the bag of sand. We needed but... to divide some of this labor. Good thing I got my wolf parent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um. So that was, I, I think the... The domestication of of the wolf to dog was pretty interesting. The other interesting thing, like the reduction in the brain size is crazy because dogs, domestic dogs, uh, have a very reduced olfactory bulb size, um, so they can't smell as well as wolves do. But that is that totally makes sense when you think, okay, they were selecting against aggression. Well, if they can smell like the stress or or whatever in another dog very well, mm-hmm. then they're also going to be on high alert. But if they can't smell it that well, then they're going to be less aggressive. And, you know, that those sorts of things all, it all fits together in a nice puzzle. Right. And you you don't have, then, and you don't need the idea of, oh, there was some kid on uh, the Eurasian steppe who saw a cute little wolf puppy that had been, you know, abandoned by its parents that died or something and was like, oh, I just love cute puppies so much. We should have cute, everyone, we should all start to have cute puppies. Why don't, why have we done this before? We all love cute things because we're humans. So everyone should get a puppy and we should all raise a cute little wolf puppy and then they'll be our best friends. And then that was the domestication of dogs. That was another one of the theories that I was reading about. I was like, I don't think the cute puppy theory works here. No, it is pretty interesting though. There's, um, I think it was in that first lecture, the guy is showing like the juvenile juvenilization uh, of dogs, like mm-hmm. breeding them to look more juvenile and more puppy-like. 
Um, and he had like a slide that's a very interesting like stage of development of dogs. And there's one, two, three, there's six stages of development for like a wolf, a wild type canine. Um, but if you have like, you want a, a juvenile looking dog, like an adolescent, there's, it's just infant and then adolescent stage. Mm-hmm. And that is where you get like the St. Bernard's or the Great Pyrenees and stuff. They look very puppy-like, even though they're large. Yeah. Um, their faces are very puppy-like and they're pretty dumb uh comparatively (laughs) like uh they're very goofy i guess you could say um i don't mean to insult anybody's dog out there um but then the next stage is object players and that's where you get hounds retrievers and poodles and i don't think anybody has met multiple you know uh golden retrievers and thought these are the smartest dogs alive you know or or um, you're even, or even like yellow labs like it's the yeah the <laughs> the history of the, the breed that developed those dogs because they wanted that golden or yellow hair color the things that you had to do to that poor dog's brain <laughs> to, to make that exist <laughs> yeah so but it's so it's a truncated <clears throat> like stage of development is like the thing and then the next is um like stalking or heading and that's where you get like the collies and then uh the final stage before wild type is healers uh corgis huskies those dogs are their stage of development is so much further so they play with objects they can stalk things uh they just don't look like puppies whereas if you want it to look like a puppy it's not really going to be trained to like herd sheep you know right and that that's the that's the interesting thing the the whole vanity side of dogs is not because dogs were vain <laughs> or even like right. the humans who were originally the partners of dogs in the initial domestication process had like a vanity project for they wanted their dogs to look a certain way this doesn't happen until you know like the 1830s so now we get to the fun part of the complete sort of uh, eugenics that's that's happened to modern dog breeds and and what we've experienced. And this goes all the way back to Victorian England. And um, at the time, you know, we're experiencing this time where you have a rise of a middle class, but at the same time you have a rise of a middle class, you have an extreme rise of the aristocracy at this point and dogs that have existed up to this point have all been like you said they're for their use and for their purpose so you have the herding dogs which are basically for herding and you have all these dogs that are just basically specific for what their capabilities are hunting um herding guarding so dogs are called those things they're called herd dogs or sheep dogs or guard dogs (laughs) there's not like a name that is associated with that thing it's just named by after what it does because it was bred to have these characteristics that make it good at that thing um and the thing that they were bred most for at this period in time was fighting because fighting dogs was huge business in the early and Victorian era. 
It was where all the aristocrats and the new money middle class would come and bet their wages and try to make a killing off of their insider knowledge of whose dog was bred to fight the best and everything like that. And this mm-hmm. this is the direct correlation to like the White Fang story. Like dog fighting is a huge deal. Well, in 1830, dog fighting becomes outlawed in Britain. Oh, really? Bef- before slavery <laughs> becomes outlawed. <laughs> okay. I mean. Dog fighting first. And so the uh there's a whole new uh sort of vacuum of what do we do with these concepts that we've been using for breeding these incredible fighting dogs and instead of now having a sport of dog fighting the new aristocratic proper sport for people who are of high society or who have the ambition to be in high society go- get into the sport of dog shows. And so dog shows start in the 1830s and, you know, they reach their height in like the early 1900s in Victorian England. And the whole thing is about breeding dogs that present well in this sort of fashion show type of environment. And once you get that, then you get a lot of these different specializations of different people trying to breed a dog in a specific way to look a certain way so that they can win best in show at the dog show. And Victorian, this is considered a sport for the aristocrats. And so there's very specific rules that are established by the rules makers of the different Victorian sports at the time. So as the show grows, there's more categories where you can excel in, whether it's like uh, the strength of the dog or the coat of the dog, the consistency of the color of the dog without having any imperfections in its coat. So if, it's, if you're trying to get a pure white or a pure yellow with no like dustiness in it at all, um, the length of the snout of a certain dog, the shortness of a snout of a certain dog, all of these types of things become categories that you can win in these dog shows in the Victorian era. Then once these dogs start winning these shows and they become uh, popularized through the media and in the culture, then all the people that go to the shows to attend the shows as a sporting event, now they don't just want to root for the dog that's been bred to look the best at the show. Every single Victorian lady in England wants that dog. And so now the breeder has an entire market that he can charge for creating copies of this type of dog. And I can make it even cuter for you. And I and these the the aristocrats in Russia then fall in love with miniature dogs. (laughs) And so like the thing becomes you're not part of high society if you don't have a tiny dog that can fit in your lap or you can carry around with you at all times. And so then you get these miniaturizations into these teacup sizes and small dogs and and eventual, you know, versions of teacup poodles and these really tiny versions of dwarfed dogs. Um, and that rises these other breeds that then get copied out of that. And um, so I the, the biggest the biggest overarching idea is that there's no such thing as a pure breed ever. There's no pure breed. There's no purebred dog. There's no original breed that 
anyone can find even nowadays. Back then there wasn't. And nowadays, especially not. So if you're going to pay like $10,000 for a purebred pug or German shepherd or something like that, know that those dogs are already mongrels that have been genetically pieced together by a bunch of trial and error in the past 200 years to create that. And it's not any kind of pure lineage or show some kind of like, ooh, this guy's got good genes or something like that. <laughs> they're all they're all mutts. <laughs> yeah, but some of them, like the ones that have been intentionally tried to be purebred or whatever, uh, do have uh, more bad genes. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> because, because you end up in, so much you end up inbreeding. inbreeding them, <laughs> and you get yeah. you get bad mutations as a result. I'm not one really to talk with Chibi here, but um, <laughs> trust me, most uh, most ones you get from a shelter are way healthier. Um, but yeah, the I I thought that it was going to be like harder to find that sort of story, but everywhere you look talking about dogs, um, it is <laughs> they all just go back to the Victorian age. Yep. And uh, it's, it's it's an in, it's an interesting time in humanity too because it is this sort of we are realizing through technology and certain things that are happening that none of us have to work as hard anymore. There's more disposable income per individual. We are able to then have like our own interests outside of toiling in the fields <laughs> till we die, and then. And then these things are not just accessible to like royalty or to the the lords of the land. These things are accessible to the aristocracy and the bourgeoisie and the middle class. And it trickles on down all the way to everybody. And it becomes a, uh, you know, a complete culture of of humans and their pets at this point. And it's not it's not a thing that was existing um, you know, before the Victorian era, this is a huge culture shift in not just the way that dogs are treated, but specifically because of the economics and the capabilities of humans at this time, because of the sort of onrush of modernity that is happening. Yeah. And this also like goes into, um, you know, we live in an apartment and a lot of people uh, who have looked at apartments know that there's like certain breeds <laughs> that are restricted. Um, no pit and bulls. Those, those things are so made up. <laughs> One, it's nice to see like, I don't think I've ever lived in an apartment that actually told someone they couldn't have their dog, even though like like you can look at a husky or a german shepherd and know what it is um and those are typically like not allowed but people you know think like oh well it's so cute but that's like way more of a wolf yeah. <laughs> than say a pit bull oh and i'm sure um, they're but, all fine with pugs but if you told them the original pug was bigger than a greyhound would you, <laughs> would you be right cool <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's sort of like um I don't know. I was trying, I wanted to find like more stuff on it. I just didn't have time, but, uh, I feel like there is some, you know, uh, something racist going on there. Um, yeah. but I'm not, not quite sure yet, but yeah, it's <laughs> like pit bulls are definitely not an aggressive breed, despite what Matt Brunig wants to drive home. Ooh, um, fight. 
but they the like there's so many different things made up and i don't know when they came about like the you know pit bulls will their brains will keep growing but their skull doesn't grow so then they go crazy when they're older mm-hmm. um one that doesn't happen uh two <laughs> if that were to happen then they would just die because you just can't overheat and explode yeah uh, and three, that myth started with Dobermans, um, and then it transferred over to pit bulls at some point. Oh yeah, that the dog myth rabbit trail that is possible from like all the way from like Sherlock Holmes, Hound of the Baskervilles, to like people thinking there's the that dogs, uh, rabid dogs because of the rabies um, epidemic in France, and you know kids getting bit by dogs so now all dogs are just rabid on onset so we're gonna just murder 500,000 dogs and stuff like that you know we talked about too like in in our old plague episode or in our old uh polio episode about how Americans got the myth that polio was somehow contracted and carried by cats and so millions of domestic cats were were murdered in the streets to stop polio (laughs) yeah it's nuts um so i think are did did you want to i wanted to touch on uh justin's requested topic oh yeah real real quick sexually transmitted disease so to uh to give you an idea of what happened with breeding and how breeding was is a flash fire event that creates all the dogs that you know and love today in 1850 now this is after the uh the idea of the dog show had been around for a while and breeders had switched from breeding for fighting to breeding for these specialized um types in 1850 the first published book on the different types of dog breeds listed 27 different types that's the exhaustive list at the time. Mm. That's how many that were created. By 1900, there's 80. And today, there's over 400. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we're talking in less, less than 200 years. We've gone from almost no dog breeds except for a handful that are for specific type of uses to 400 different breeds and that's not speciation that's not evolution that's not any kind of mutation morphological any kind of pressure like that that is strictly us playing with that one gene toolkit that we talked about and then mixing and matching until we get the desired result yeah the strange thing too so if you look at like the phylogenetic tree of dog breeds um, you, it categorizes them in like two different ways. You can categorize them based off of the function, like you were talking about, like sight dogs. And then, okay, we've got a bunch of different types of sight dogs. You have like healers. All right. Well, you had like kind of healers are kind of like a collie mix sort of thing that came from England, but then down in Australia, uh, those dog were, dogs were dying from the heat. So then they crossed it with the dingo. So that's how you get the blue healer. Mm -hmm. Okay, but it's still, it's the function. Um, But then the toy breed, they just took small dogs and then, you know, you think of toy dog breeds and you're like, well, there's like plenty of different breeds. No, it's like just came from this one small sliver and then they bred them with all the other dogs so they could just 
look like different small dogs. Yeah. <laughs> like it's not, those aren't bred out from, you know, all of these different types of functions of dogs to then be small. It was, they took a small one and just crossed it with, you know, whatever, um, which I don't want to like envision myself. <laughs> well, like the, uh, the best example of that, that I found was the, um, Irish wolfhound. I don't know if you read any up on the Irish wolfhound in this. No, I do know that dog though. It's massive. It is massive, but it is a dog that was extinct in the middle of the 19th century. It was just a rumor. Like people in Ireland would talk about this dog that used to exist, but no, it doesn't exist anymore. Um, and so this guy, George Graham, because of part of this, uh, this dog show project <laughs> he's like well if we can breed these other dogs to look like other things i bet you i can bring the irish wolfhound back from extinction <laughs> huh. so he went around and he first went to ireland and he found a bunch of dogs that people said this reminds me of an irish wolfhound or my grandfather had an irish wolfhound and this is what he told me it looked like and he got all these dogs and he tried to breed them together in order to create an irish wolfhound to try to find like maybe i'll get like a genetic offspring that shows me you know one that was from the past um unfortunately they produced a bunch of sterile offspring or they would not breed in captivity no matter how hard he prodded them. So he kind of gave up on that method of the project. So in order to create the Irish wolfhound that we all know now that, you know, as a giant dog, he went to, <clears throat> he imported a crop of Scottish deer hounds. He mixed those with great Danes. He mixed those with Tibetan mastiffs a boxer and some German dogs to create this mongrel dog that then looked like pictures that people had drawn in books of what Irish wolfhounds used to look like. That's insane. So the Irish <laughs> wolfhound has no, no, no descendant from Ireland whatsoever. In fact, it's from Scotland and Tibet primarily. So if all these people, and now, the Irish Wolfhound is like the dog of Ireland. Like the, uh, there's etchings of it on government buildings and all over. It's on everyone's Jeez. everything, and it has nothing to do with Ireland whatsoever. Sounds more like the Irish American <laughs> Wolfhound. So yeah, uh, this is the example of the, there's no such thing as a as a pure purebred dog because they just created them in the Victorian era. They just yeah. created them. <laughs> Man, it was, I guess, have you, did you ever go with your family to adopt a dog? Uh, yeah. For whatever reason, so I had dogs growing up uh, my entire life. And um, when Miho and I like moved in together in Houston, uh, we we lasted one full month before getting a dog. And... We went to like the the shelter and um, I, I'm just imagining because purebred and then adopt from a shelter and this is how the story came up in my head. Mm -hmm. um, we like go to the shelter and they're asking about all of my different dogs I've owned and like I've got to be riding past like the slot that they have because <laughs> we've had so many and they're asking how like each of them died and everything. 
Uh, and then they were just like, um, no, we can't, we can't adopt you out a dog to you guys. You, you haven't been, uh, you haven't raised a dog together. And I'm like, well, what? how are we supposed to start Wait, if we what? can't? Yeah. They, they like, not like give adopting us a, dog. a human. You guys are just, this is a shelter. I thought you're just trying to get rid of them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was like, it was a shelter shelter too. Yeah. Um, we ended up finding, uh, for Totoro, there was this lady that like ran her own rescue out kind of in the countryside. And, uh, we went <clears throat> and got him a few years later. I think she was shut down for, um, for, uh, they said animal abuse, but I'm pretty sure it was just she was way in over her head. Yeah, <laughs> like, she kept breeding, she and like, then she ended up with like 200 no, dogs. <laughs> she she never bred anything. Oh. She was like a rescue, but then she would just take everybody's rescue. Okay. So then she just had like 200 dogs and like 50 cats and four horses. Rabbits and, and a couple turtles, guinea right. pigs everywhere. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She um, was Tony. So. <laughs> yes exactly uh but yeah so that just reminded me of that so the other thing um that uh since you promoted on twitter that we were doing dogs um justin then said he wanted to he was begging for this venereal disease in dogs mm-hmm. to be spoken about um so canine transmissible venereal tumor i don't think i'd ever heard of it I'd never even thought about VD and dogs before Justin brought that up. (laughs) Like, I didn't know if there's just like dog herpes or is it like the clap for dogs? I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's and obviously, you know, dogs getting any like disease, especially something that's like sexually transmitted, you're going to think, well, then they die out. Right. Because it's right. Everyone's sniffing and licking each other's privates all the time. It's not even doesn't even have to be a sex act like you'd think. (laughs) <laughs> right um if there's dog so, aids like i know there's feline aids but cats it doesn't really affect them very much because they've had it for so long <laughs> it's i was looking i found like an actual article like a, a published study talking about it um but then i found like the atlantic did a story on it a few years ago which i think maybe that's how like it came back into vogue or whatever um so jake will get around to reading it in like five ten years uh do you remember that bit yeah uh anyways <laughs> um it's amazing like i can contain knowledge of podcasts in my head for years but i you know something like electricity i have to relearn <laughs> even though we've spoken about it like 10 times so this uh venereal tumor that is a a a tumor that is caused through like um you know transmission via sex or some sort of sex act or something which we know that there's like several cancers that can be caused by infectious entities um such as like cervical cancer can be um caused by hpv which is an a sexually transmitted virus. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think most people are pretty familiar with that one now, especially with like Gardasil when I was a kid uh, came out. So well, you, it must have been years. when you were uh, in high school in Texas when um, Rick Perry wanted to give all females in Texas under 16 years old mandated an HPV vaccine for them. And all of the 
<clears throat> conservatives were all up in arms about mandating a vaccine to stop cervical cancer because you don't need to give our teen girls sex sex treatments type of thing. Right. And he was a Republican governor. <laughs> yeah, that's it's amazing how things have changed. <laughs> um so the the thing though with this um disease, this like cancer that is spread is it's not caused by like a virus or whatever. Um the cancer itself in like cervical cancer is not infectious and can't spread like to another person. But in the CTVT, each cancer cell is a free living parasite that causes a tumor on another dog. Ah. And the thing with it is it is it is a somatic cell that is causing the cancer. So this disease, um, they think arose in a small population of dogs that were isolated like 11,000 years ago. And the, I think they've done like genetic testing on it. And it's like those dogs like don't exist anymore. Um, but it, this, so the thing with like a somatic cell, you have like two types of cells in your body. You have somatic cells, which are like all of your cells. Mm -hmm. And then you have like the sex cells that only have like one copy of DNA in them. Yeah. Um, so somatic cells have your, your, two copies of dna so that means that it's like essentially if a flake of my skin cell landed on you and caused a tumor to start growing on you like it is (laughs) such a weird uh process that this has gone through and through all of its various genetic uh, mutations that have occurred it is like the difference between this uh, cancer cell that exists now and the one that existed 11,000 years ago, it's, it is as different as like, like a chihuahua to a mastiff. Like it is, (laughs) it is so different genetically than what it originally was, but they can trace back and find like kind of where it spread and everything. And Um, There are some mutations that were caused, uh, they know, by, like, exposure to UV light. Um, So they, they, like, there are certain types of things that cause mutations in cancers. Uh, Some of them just occur naturally, and then others are caused by an external force, like UV rays. Mm -hmm. And that means that it then had to go through, like, I believe sub-Saharan Africa to get, like, that just... Or not sub-Saharan, but like Saharan Africa, probably, uh, or northern Mediterranean area. To have that much just exposure. To get, yeah, to the sun. Um, another strange thing about it, though, is that uh, the there's one genetic change that they can trace to early on in its existence that they have no clue what caused the mutations to occur. And so, like, there's total speculation, but they're wondering, like, did the people who owned the dogs try to treat the tumor with, like, some kind of chemical they found? Or, like, mm. like they've got no clue what caused these mutations um, because it's a very specific type of mutation that doesn't exist in any other cancer. That's crazy. Yeah, I mean, I know, like, uh, like esophageal cancer, like, 
it's from the splashback of like the acidic nature of your stomach and stuff splashing back up into your esophagus and that just wears it thin over time and eventually then those worn down cells inside of your esophagus become cancerous because of that constant sort of grating that constant you know erosion that's happening there so i wonder if that i mean i guess something like that could happen like if they had treated tried to treat it with some sort of acid or some sort of alkaline uh mixture of something that some kind of chemical treatment that could then cause it cause that type of a mutation yeah i mean and that mutation occurred like over 2000 years ago so and it hasn't occurred since then so it's um it's super strange uh i had yeah again like never heard of this thing but they're like trying to figure out should we eradicate this because it's not like uh fatal to dogs um the tumors can be removed and it's typically as long as like the dog is healthy it doesn't grow super fast or anything mm-hmm. um but then there's like debate in the scientific community because they're like nothing else like this exists that it's a somatic cell that causes cancer on another individual um if they got rid of it then they're like can we keep it in a museum at least? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Isn't it? Is it worth uh, knowing? Because if this arises and it stops just affecting dogs and starts affecting like other animals or humans yeah, or would... whatever, would you like to have an analog that you could mess with to try to figure it out? <laughs> yeah, that that would not be great, but it would be. But then everyone so will strange. just blame us for having bio labs, and and then we should, you know, get invaded by another country because of it. Yeah, I mean, at least we know how the world has handled an outbreak of some sort and we're prepared for the next one. Dude, do you know how much people would be all for getting vaccinated and wearing masks if like the the result of COVID was that we had a big growth on the tip of our penis? <laughs> I don't know. Like, <laughs> I'm not, I, I, I'm not sure. It's one of would. the things where... I, I think like the whole discourse would be different if uh, if COVID like caused you to have like tons of tiny mump style bumps like explode all over your face. <laughs> I don't think yeah. anyone would be like, I'm not getting anything to take care of that. <laughs> I want natural immunity. <laughs> and all, what we needed was a little bit of vanity in, inserted into the the pathogen so that we could really be compelled to believe the science for the uh, for the cure or for or for the mitigation factors. But since it I mean, really have- didn't affect our vanity in any way, we it's easy for us to say Psh, the flu. What are you talking about? <laughs> we do have uh, that other variant growing in the UK, so. You know, there's still time. Let's cross our fingers and hope it causes us to have like a big pussy tumor on the tip of our penis. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That's the only only way we're going to get out of this. (laughs) It's got to get worse before it can really get better, Eric. That's that's what I've learned. (laughs) Like we thought we, we thought Trump was like, oh, man, we hit rock bottom. So now we finally came together. We don't want to hit rock bottom again. That was bad. No, we didn't go. We didn't go down enough. <laughs> we needed at least two terms. Maybe, maybe we'll maybe we'll get it right. We'll reelect them, and we'll really hit rock bottom, and then people will know that we got to do something about this stuff. But I don't think we've hit rock bottom yet. You know, I 
The only reason I think he can't get elected again is because he is pro-vaccine, because he wants to be like, I made the vaccine. Why do you not want the vaccine? Like, <laughs> he, can't, he can't resist taking credit for it. <laughs> yeah. And, and um, plus, you know, this is America. Uh, presidents can't serve three terms in a row. So that's probably why he can't get elected again. Oh, right, right. Uh, he is serving from his yeah. shadow truth his, his de facto second term is going on right now, so them's the rules. Yeah. <laughs> well, I know that SNL will probably burn him in an open, and that'll be Oh, yeah, that'll then be that'll the be it. it, yeah. Then, he'll, then everyone will be like, Shh, man, I can't believe all the cool people are making fun of this dope. I want to be cool. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well. Great, great job, Eric, on uh, on learning about dogs. I, I feel like you taught me a lot. Good, yes, so happy. And um, uh, dogs are also not colorblind, so yeah, that's well, they are. They're red, green, colorblind, right? But not colorblind. They don't see black right. and white. No, they just see shades of blue and yellow. Which uh, I don't know if you've looked at photos like with the filter to try and kind of show you what it looks like. But it looks horrible. <laughs> There's um, like it's so like video games that have accessibility features, like Last of Us Two, has um, all the different sort of variations for colorblindness. So people who are like mm. totally colorblind, red, green, or the, all the different sort of variation for the color palette, and so you can switch that color palette on, and you know s- to see what it looks like. And it's weird when you like just turn off all of one color <laughs> out of your yeah, out yeah. of your tricolor option um it's it's pretty crazy what it looks like yeah it's um it's strange because like the just with the blue yellow like they have a bunch of tomatoes here that are some are green and some are red but like they all look the same some of them are like darker than others um but dogs can also like uh there's some evidence that they can see some ultraviolet mm-hmm. uh spectrum which then i can't even imagine what your what like the vision looks like oh yeah like. that's like cats too because they have the uh the mirror function in the back mm-hmm. of their eyes so they get like double they where we just get the light coming in once they get it bounced back and forth so again they get multiple refractions for every light that enters their eye which is why they can see really well in the dark but that also leads them to see a much a higher spectrum than we can so whenever you see like the cat looking up in the corner <laughs> at nothing and you're like what are you looking at and yeah. everyone's like oh man my cat sees ghosts it's like no i think it just could probably see like a little bit higher in the in the light spectrum than you can and it's seeing like artifacts of different like little flickers and flashes that are floating around on the walls from the sun coming into the into the room and stuff there's some uh ball lightning yeah <laughs> i was surprised at their visual acuity though um dogs not that great and like no nose well, is more important yeah which you know um obviously they can sense things way better but in well-lit conditions they're 2050 vision and then uh during night i thought they had like good night vision but it's uh 2250 vision oh so they see like me at night i'm 23 is that like i'm 2300 around? corrected Twenty twenty three hundred. Yeah. Oh, twenty three hundred. Okay. No, no, not two thousand three hundred. Twenty. Yeah. Okay. Slash three hundred. Yeah. Then it's. So then it is. Uh, 
similar. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's, um, but they have like the ability to sense motion mm-hmm. way better. They're like, what is it? The critical flicker fusion rate. Like humans, it's 60 hertz yeah. or 60 times a second that a light flickers and then we just see it as a constant light. Um, but for dogs, it's 75 times a second. So all of your lights are flickering they're, they're nonstop. Seeing the, they're seeing the strobe effect. All the dogs are living in a freaking epileptic strobe nightmare. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Makes way more sense Do you have now. to get? Does that mean you have to get like different led hertz frequencies for chibi are you worried that that sets him off <laughs> uh no he's he's actually you know knock on wood but he hasn't had a seizure in like over a year because you just live um, in like so. candlelight you only <laughs> yes <laughs> just yeah. candlelight gas oil lamps all over your house <laughs> <laughs> i just exude a certain aura for yeah, myself yeah, and go. that's how i like it and way. it's a constant light a constant light yeah <laughs> All right, well, man. Well, that's all that I have. Uh, great job today, and I hope Chibi feels better. Job. Thank you, sir. Until next I'll week. Talk with you next week. Yes, I was going to say. Oh that. no, you're. That's not. You're supposed to say the other part. Bye.